Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com culture. And by TasteBud, a new mobile app that lets you share and discover movies, music, books, TV shows, podcasts, and apps. Ask friends for specific recommendations or simply share your current obsessions. Go to tastebudapp.co. That's tastebudapp.co. And by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Should we consult here or in my bungalow edition? It's Wednesday, June 17th, 2015. On today's show, Jurassic World, it's the franchise reboot of the old Spielberg-Michael Crichton trio. It absolutely dominated this past weekend's box office. We'll talk about whether we liked it. And then the jazz musician and composer Ornette Coleman died this past week. We'll discuss his music and legacy with Slate's own Fred Kaplan. And finally, the United States has a new poet laureate. Juan Felipe Herrera joins us to discuss his life, his work, and his new job title. Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. And this week, no Julia Turner. She's off doing something bossy somewhere. Um, We're joined instead by June Thomas, who's culture critic and editor of Slate's LGBT. (laughs) <laughs> I knew I was going to blow it. LGTBQ blog. Outward. June, welcome back to the show. Good enough. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Some letters. <laughs> it's very it inclusive. Keeps, I was going to say it keeps adding letters except for S, W, and M, I guess. But um, any- <laughs> All right. Well, listen, before we dig in with these ever so juicy topics, Dana, what do we have for Slate Plus? Slate Plus today is a listener suggestion, actually. Somebody on the Facebook page, a listener with the beautiful name of Tara, or maybe Tara Wings, I don't know how she pronounces her first name, but the last name Wings is pretty awesome, suggested that we talk about uh, gifts for literary dads, because Father's Day is coming up this Sunday. So we're going to talk about what books to give your father this Sunday. All right, well, moving on. Jurassic World is the franchise reboot of the old Jurassic Park trio about dinosaurs being made de-extinct and running wild over global audiences everywhere. In the new movie, they haven't only been hatched, they've been genetically engineered to satisfy a Jurassic theme park's need for ever more thrilling creatures. The movie stars Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. Let's listen to a clip. Just went and made a new dinosaur? Yeah, it's kind of what we do here. The exhibit opens to the public in three weeks. Mr. Mizrani wanted me to consult with you. You want to consult here or in my bungalow? It's not funny. <laughs> A little funny. We'd like you to evaluate the paddock for vulnerabilities. Why me? I guess Mr. Mizrani thinks since you're able to control the raptors. See, it's all about control with you. I don't control the raptors. It's a relationship. It's based on mutual respect. That's why you and I never had a second date. Excuse me. I never wanted a second date. Who prints out an itinerary for a night out? I'm an organized person. What kind of a diet doesn't allow tequila? All of them, actually. And what kind of a man shows up to a date 
in board shorts. But Central America is hot. Okay, okay. Can we just focus on the asset, please? The asset? Look, I get it. You're in charge out here. You got to make a lot of tough decisions. It's probably easier to pretend these animals are just numbers on a spreadsheet. But they're not. They're alive. I'm fully aware they're alive. You might have made them in a test tube. But they don't know that. They're thinking, I got to eat. I got to hunt. I got to... You can relate to at least one of those things, right? All right. Well, Dana, there are a lot of uh, pretty readily identifiable uh, genre elements going on in that clip. They're pervasive throughout the movie. He's a lovable, goofball, tough guy who's you know bonded with the animal other. She's a spreadsheet-obsessed corporate hack who, it turns out, will have a heart of both courage and gold, an awful genetically engineered creature designed to do nothing but make more money for a faceless corporation is now on the loose and running rampage. Can she convince him to go hunt it? Will he try to tame it or kill it? On and on and on and on. What did you make of this movie? It certainly made a lot of money, with or without our approval. Did you like it? You know, I kind of did. I mean, the last movie I felt any need to have rebooted was Jurassic Park. It's already had two not very good sequels to the, I think, really good Spielberg original. But even the original to me, maybe because of when it came out, was not something that was beloved to my heart. So I felt neither uh, sort of betrayal nor excitement about the idea of it being rebooted by this director, Colin Trevorrow, whose previous, only previous feature film, Safety Not Guaranteed, I didn't really love. And yet, I thought this Jurassic World was tons of fun. I think it did everything you would need from a non-Spielberg-directed movie about big, genetically engineered dinosaurs chomping on humans. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even though, as you say, every story beat is completely predictable and it breaks no new ground whatsoever, it's pretty successful in terms of being a chase movie and the special effects are, are fabulous. June, Dana says, you know, it hits all the obvious beats. It also does something that we've noted on the show a number of times that blockbusters are doing increasingly, which is a kind of cake-and-eat-it-too style of presentation. So the movie, in this instance, is very cynical about the theme park, almost as a way of making the guilty pleasure of the movie itself go down smoothly. What did you make of the film? Did you like it? Um, But what also did you make about the kind of layer of irony, which is supposed to make it more palatable to thinking people such as yourself? I don't know if I really took it as irony or if I think a movie like this, when it works, which is to say when you are appropriately or sufficiently caught up in the excitement and when the roar of these giant beasts fills you with joy and excitement rather than just being another yawn, you know, you don't think too much about while they're talking about assets and and exploiting creatures when we're being subjected to endless product placement asset exposures, whatever term uh, would be appropriate for a spreadsheet. I mean, yes, it's not a subtle film, but some of the blockbusters aren't supposed to be. I had a good time. I wasn't horrendously insulted by it. (laughs) Well, and also, Mm -hmm. I guess I just feel like at some level, if you're going to break down summer movies to the basic types of summer movies, I would rather see people get chased by giant dinosaurs than giant robots, superheroes, you know, all of these sort of all of the summer um, villains and heroes that we're used to. I'm sort of more into the Planet of the Apes type movie that's in some way about man versus nature, which is the basic conflict here. I know we've entered some bizarro universe where a Jurassic Park reboot seems original (laughs) relative to the superhero, a flood of superheroes. Just the fact that it had giant reptiles instead of um, men in tights kind of made it seem fresh and new. I went. This is the first movie that I've gone to see with uh, one of my kids Mm. in preparation for the show. So that was an education in and of itself. My daughter, who's never seen the original Jurassic movies, we wanted to squeeze in the very first one before we saw this, but didn't have a chance, really enjoyed it. I mean, she was completely titillated by the sight of the dinosaurs. She liked the action. She loves Chris Pratt from Guardians (laughs) of the Galaxy. And, uh, and so it's hard to be tough on a movie that's so captivated your own child. And um, I mostly enjoyed it. I would say one of the defining facts of Spielberg's career as a director in Jaws and the first Jurassic Park is, is his ability to withhold in order to create suspense. He obviously was a student of Hitchcock in this regard. He didn't, even though he almost created the action-saturated world we live in now, he didn't himself feel the need to saturate his own films with action. The amazing thing about the first Jaws is how talky it is, how much of a social drama it is, and how long before you finally see the shark 
how he unveils the shark is masterly. You know, he understands that, you know, less can be a lot more. In the first Jurassic Park, the most thrilling shot of the whole movie, if I remember correctly, is I believe it's a cup of water on a dashboard in a Jeep starts to tremble. And you realize it's because off in the distance, a huge creature is walking and its footsteps reverberate far away. That's a, a wonderful directorial detail. I thought this movie learned some of those lessons. I mean, Nola Jar just read about this in her review in The Times. There's a lot of Spielberg anxiety of in- influence in this movie, but not in a totally bad way. I mean, the kids at the beginning of the movie, the domestic drama, uh, uh, the specter of divorce, all of that comes from Spielberg. You know, will the family be reunited, you know, via the adventure they're about to have? But I also thought that this director, Trevorrow, who I have to admit, Dana, I'd never heard of, appears to have been a daring choice. I do think he learned the biggest lesson, which is even though you eventually get full Monty, he does withhold, he does try to create suspense, he does try to build, and I appreciated that. One of the things that struck me as somebody who only dabbles very loosely in these big summer movies is that often when I do go to see them now, I'm lost because they're so drenched in mythology and you kind of come In the middle of a story, you know, it's like coming into a TV series that's very serialized and full of kind of continuing adventures. Even though you've just paid your $20, you come into the middle of something. And while there were lots of references to the earlier movies, especially to the original, which some of which were chronicled in a piece in Browbeat in Slate, you didn't have to know chapter and verse in the backstory of the backstory. And I appreciated that because I still got that they were referring to Jurassic Park, which I saw many years ago and don't remember a single thing about. But I didn't lose anything in this film. It wasn't like that whole, like, yeah, the thing that happened in New York with the hammer. Like, I don't know what that was. <laughs> and I don't, I don't need to know all kinds of backstory to figure out which animals could eat other animals. You know what I, I mean? I want a movie about the thing that happened in New York with the hammer. <laughs> I believe it's called The Avengers. <laughs> well, let me quickly say, I want to hit a couple of things before we move on. But Dana, do, do you agree that whether it works or not, whether it's prominent or not, it is laid on very thickly that the, the satire against the theme park and corporate mentality, isn't that what uh, Julia oh, in absentia, I want you to represent Julia in absentia, isn't that the sinister note that she's starting to talk about in these movies is cake and eat it too mentality towards the material. Right. You mean that there's a critique of the commercialism and corporate greed of the theme park owners, and yet the movie itself is just a big money-raking machine, right? I mean... Thank you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that irony is so present on the surface that it's, it's yeah. sort of hard to know what to do with it, and it's really obvious that the movie is extremely aware of it, too. And um, the movie has that kind of, you know, without spoiling what happens to whom, it has that moral universe wherein, you know, the people who display that corporate greed the most nakedly are the most likely to end up as appetizers for the indominus rest who we haven't talked about yet, which is the new dinosaur, the genetically created, non-existent in, in history dinosaur that they, they breed, basically for the public's, for the sake of the public's hunger, for, for ever bigger, ever scarier dinosaurs. More wow factor. You know, I have one question that perhaps you can illuminate for me. So in movies like this, generally, there's a big bad. In this movie, it was kind of the genetically modified creature. But we also knew that behind that there was actually a bigger bad, which was the humans who created it. Because that's morally it. bad, right? The right. monster herself is kind of morally neutral. Right, exactly. So it's the people behind it who created it who are the real monster sort of thing. However, there's this Vincent D'Onofrio character who's also, you know, twirling his mustache. He doesn't have a mustache. Because he wants to sort of weaponize the creatures like the velociraptors that Chris Pratt can whisper to. But that made no sense to me because, I mean, we've seen a clear example like in Game of Thrones, even guys with spears can really seriously injure a fire-breathing dragon. So, like, don't we think that, you know, even in an asymmetrical warfare, that velociraptors are not actually going to be able to do too much damage, you know, in a in a foreign Dude, battlefield. Like, what I was love that, that about? You're bringing, I love that you're bringing the authority of science to this debate, <laughs> a.k.a. Game of Thrones dragonry. I mean, it's just I also good. love I that, look- that June is, is, is taking plausibility. She's finding a place where plausibility starts to matter in Jurassic World. Like, I'm going to write a white paper on this. But, I mean, I what mean, the hell was that? Like, why, was, why did we even have that there? 
Because it wasn't for kids. A complete fantasy creature can be killed by a fantasy spear. Why I would you weaponize the creature? I think the real reason Vincent D'Onofrio was in there was that you needed a villain like that. You, you needed not yeah. just the monster chasing. And then there's this more, more morally neutral figure, the owner of the park, who's played right. by Irfan Khan, the wonderful right. Indian actor. Um, from and, the lunchbox. Oh, yeah, yes, the guy from the lunchbox. And, and who's sort of everywhere. I mean, he's in Life of Pi. He's sort of he's, he's sort of become our sort of new go-to middle-aged Indian guy and is a huge star in India. Anyway, he's wonderful in this role as this more morally not black, not white character, right? Mm-hmm. He's very proud of his park. At the beginning, he gives this sort of speech about the values of his park that sound more like what Chris Pratt was saying mm-hmm. in that clip. They're animals, not assets, right? More than the Bryce Dallas Howard cold corporatism. But ultimately, he is kind of a dicey figure as well because of his hubris. You know, mm-hmm. So this is all a story about Frankenstein. It's the Frankenstein story. Yeah, it is, yeah. June, what did you make of the relationship between the two leads and her own high heels, et cetera? I mean, I think we can stipulate that there are some very retrograde gender roles being portrayed here. I think Laura Bradley, in a, again, in a, yet another browbeat post about Jurassic World in Slate, said, if you zone out until someone starts running, Jurassic World is the perfect action movie. But if you pay attention, you're going to see some very sort of retrograde gender roles. And that's true. But, you know, I have to say this whole controversy over High Heel Gate, I was really impressed that she was doing all that running You mean that Bryce Dallas, Bryce Dallas Howard, yeah, she's the entire time is wearing a white, right, a bright white suit and a pair of stiletto heels yeah. and, and doing all of her dinosaur running. It's, it is pretty impressive. But, you know, I think maybe it's that whole thing that when you're being chased by a bear, you don't have to be the fastest. You just have to not be the slowest. So maybe she knew that even in heels, she could beat some poor schlub that's uh, in the vicinity. <laughs> One of her little nephews. Yes. Okay, well, the movie is Jurassic World. It made a billion dollars. Go see it. Help it make another billion. But um, after you do, come and tell us whether you actually liked it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, June. Thomas, what do we have? Well, this episode of Slate's Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, you should check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, and Living Social. So Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly, and Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. So yes, when you enter the Three Comma Club, Braintree will be there with you. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, Go to braintreepayments.com slash culture. Stephen? June. (laughs) Okay, moving on. When I think about jazz, I think about improvisation within a fairly rigid structure, either supplied by the blues or maybe by the American songbook, i.e. soloing within a form that it plays with and mutates beyond but doesn't completely explode. Beginning with something else, his debut album in 1958, through the classic Shape of Jazz to Come, and This Is Our Music, Ornette Coleman exploded the form. He released Melody Lines out into space. Ornette Coleman died this past week, a universally acknowledged giant of the American idiom. We're joined today by Fred Kaplan, who is the War Stories columnist for Slate and a generalist of uh, remarkable uh, breadth. Uh, Fred, welcome to the show. Oh, good to be here. Fred, uh, first of all, it's excellent to have you back on the program. I think we last spoke about abstract expressionism and Jackson Pollock together. So this kind of makes a theme to talk about Ornette Coleman. It, it does. He People say he was the Jackson Pollock of jazz. Exactly. Well, expand on that a little bit, because I think many people who worship Miles and Coltrane can't follow Ornette Coleman where he's going. Talk a little bit about how surprising his sound remains today. Well, you know, I, I felt the same way originally. When I Starting when I was about 15, I started collecting dozens of Charlie Parker and Miles Davis records, and I was very much into it. And I heard Ornette Coleman, and I just thought it was pure chaos. I, I didn't understand it at all. But when I finally latched onto it, I realized that it's actually very simple. What he's playing mainly are, are melodies. They're melodies. The difference is that unlike most popular American songs, which go through a certain chord changes, you know, you chords act as kind of the the compass for the song. Even if you've never heard the song before, you can usually guess what the next note is going to be because you know the C chord is coming up or whatever. Even if you don't know what a C chord is, you can still feel this. Well, with Ornette, it's different. He's playing melodies, but they're not going in any preset direction. You don't know where they're going. And the people behind him, 
they're not playing standard chords. They're often not even playing chords at all. They're playing something else that they're responding to the music in their own way. And what you really have to do to get into Ornette Coleman, and this sounds terribly new age, and he was really not a new age kind of guy, but is just to let yourself go, to immerse yourself in it, allow yourself to be taken in the direction that the music is taking you, not to say, well, that violates my preconceptions about where this song was going. Mm. All right, well, Fred, let's pick a track and have it serve as a kind of gateway drug for our listeners to to the splendors. The song that became his anthem was off his first real breakthrough album, The Shape of Jazz to Come, And it's a song that he'd written several years earlier called Lonely Woman. first of all, it starts off so strange, this kind of slow dirge of a bass with very fast rolling drums. I don't think anybody had ever done that before. And then all of a sudden, the saxophone and trumpet come in in perfect unison. And the bass and the drums keep doing what they've been doing. They're not changing it at all. And there are no chords. It's like, well, what's going on here? Usually, if a conventional group were playing this, When they would get to the second line, the bass would change from the key he was in to another chord. But none of that's happening. Upon first listen, you have to think this came out in 1959. It was mystifying. But then the more people listened to it, I mean, I I think it's probably the most hauntingly beautiful song in all of jazz. Mm. It's just just a, a musical miracle, really. Can I say a little something about the circumstances of its composition, which I only know thanks to our brilliant intern who found this interview that Jacques Derrida did with Ornette Coleman in the late 90s. Wow, I never saw that. Really incredible questions, and it makes you start to see how, just as you were saying, he's the Jackson Pollock of jazz. He's maybe also sort of a a deconstructor of jazz, right? He has something in common with Derrida's idiom. So in this conversation, he talks about the composition of Lonely Woman and says that it came about when he was working in a department store. And there was a, a portrait, a painting of a woman, a white woman, he said, a very wealthy-looking white woman who seemed to have everything she wanted in life, and yet she had the most solitary expression he'd ever seen. And so, to me, it's just so interesting that this utterly non-narrative-sounding, sort of non-structured-sounding piece is, is actually about all of these things. It's about this portrait and about race and class and gender and all of these, these subcurrents. Yeah, and the, the other thing about the way he blew his horn, I mean, he's bending notes, you know, he's not quite hitting exact. There, there is a story. He was at some clinic once, and Bob Brookmeyer, who was a leading composer, big band leader at the time, he and Cherry were, Don Cherry, the trumpeter, were playing there. And he said, tune up, damn it. <laughs> you know, and later he apologized because he realized the problem was him. He just didn't, <laughs> he just didn't get what was going on. But there's something very human and emotional about all of his music. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very heady. But ultimately, it's about emotion. It is about human feeling. The other thing I wanted to say is, you know, there's this, he's been called the father of free jazz. And there's been some misunderstandings about this. People, including some of his people who are inspired by him, think that means, oh, you just get up and play whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And that's really not it at all. his, His first great group, which was Don Cherry on trumpet, Charlie Hayden on bass, and going back and forth between Billy Higgins and Ed Blackwell on drums, all accomplished musicians who are beloved and were used in many sessions, even by people who didn't care about Ornette, they rehearsed endlessly. I mean, Don Cherry once said, this is harder to play than ordinary music because you have to know all the intervals, all the chords, and then play around them. It's not like they're just playing whatever they want. That sounds like crap. <laughs> and a lot of people who think that they're playing like Ornette, it sounds like crap. But no, there, there is a real structure to this. 
It's just not the structure that we're used to hearing. Did I read that he used to play a plastic saxophone? Yeah. You know, when he first started going around the clubs in L.A., he was working as an elevator operator in a department store. He had no money. This was something he could afford. He also kind of liked this more flexible tone you could get with a plastic horn. Now, later, when he got some money, he did get a regular, and in fact, a really excellent saxophone, but he painted it a white lacquer <laughs> to kind of... To, to, in honor of the old plastic In honor one. of the old times, yeah. Um, Fred, I was really quite surprised to discover what the precise timeline here was. I had a very hazy notion in my mind that John Coltrane took jazz to a certain point, progressivity, beyond which Ornette Coleman then picked up the baton and took it further. But that's not the timeline at all, right? Right. I mean, in 1959, which is the key year here and also the title of a book that I wrote, (laughs) uh, Coltrane went about as far as he could go with chord changes. There's an album, Giant Steps, especially a song, Countdown, which is just chord on top of chord on top of chord on t- just kind of stunning and he didn't know where to take it he goes to hear Ornette playing at the five spot he's floored he goes back every night they go off together they have hours of conversations years later Coltrane sends him a check amounting to sort of $35 for each session that they had because it was Ornette who introduced Coltrane to the idea of what you could do with jazz improvisation that was not dependent on chords. Now, Coltrane then took this in a very different direction himself with, you know, Sonship and I Love Supreme and so forth. But yeah, the inspiration here was was Ornette. And really, The Shape of Jazz to Come was a title that was invented by Ahmed Erdogan, the, the record producer. And in fact, Ornette he hated the title. He didn't quite understand. I think he didn't get the literary. He didn't get the literary reference, but it, it really was. Charles Mingus, who had an off-and-on relationship with Coleman, said, well, okay, we don't have to go the way that Ornette is going, but what he taught us was that it's not enough just to keep playing Bird, just to keep playing Charlie Parker. Mm. It's gone beyond that. Fred, is, yeah. is uh, the death of Ornette Coleman the end of jazz? Well, you know, Lester Bowie, once uh, an avant-garde trumpeter, somebody asks him, uh, is jazz dead as we know it? And he said, hmm, that all depends on what you know. <laughs> so, no, it is the end of this group. I mean, he's the last of this great quartet. Charlie Hayden died about a year ago. Cherry and Higgins had died a few years earlier. So it is kind of the end of an era. You know, he was 85. Sonny Rollins is 85. Roy Haynes is about 93. There's a handful of guys who are still doing it. But, you know, there are a lot of really good jazz musicians out there who are much better at music theory and sight reading and things like that than used to be the case who are carrying on in their tradition and doing things like it. The other thing about Ornette, he was very fortunate to find the handful of people back then who really understood what he was doing. And, you know, there's a story that Charlie Hayden, he was out in L.A., he was sitting in with a lot of bands, they'd be playing something, and he'd want to depart from the chord changes. He had some counter tune in his head, and he'd start playing that, and everybody would say, what are you doing, what are you doing, get back to the chords, you know. And when he stopped, he heard Ornette play one, and Ornette would go to these jam sessions and routinely get kicked off the bandstand within a couple of minutes. And Charlie saw this guy and goes, who is this guy? And he, but he'd already been kicked off, and he tracked him down, and he went over to his house, and the story is they spent the next 24 hours just playing, and that's when, when that group started. So a group of people kind of surrounded him and took it in directions that other rhythm sections couldn't have. In fact, if you listen to his first two records, which were called Something Else and Tomorrow is the Question... They're different accompanists, and in fact, they're much better known. But it's not the same. These guys are doing standard things. And while it's not bad and it's interesting, you see the contrast between that and the shape of jazz to come. You say, oh, well, this is what he was going for all this time. 
And it seems like maybe I'm restating something you already said, but I think I have to in order to understand it, that one of the main differences that you see when he played with Hayden and other musicians who got him is that they weren't providing a bed, right, on which he would then solo and improvise, that they were all improvising separately at once. Right, right. That's right. When you just mentioned Jane Cortez, uh, it sparked something in my head because we are going to be talking with uh, Juan Felipe Herrera, the new poet laureate who wrote a poem for Jane Cortez upon her death. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the world all comes together. It's it's interesting to, you know, these people who were doing different things and are bringing together the threads of, of American life in a different way, perhaps, are all connecting on our show. I mean, if I can just bring in another GabFest connection to, to Coleman, it's that he did a film score with Howard Shore. He may have done other film scores, but the one that I know is Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, Naked Lunch which is a right. great, inventive, bizarre score that goes perfectly with the, the strange, sick world of, of that movie. And, uh, and Howard Shore has been a guest on our show. We interviewed him once live. So, yeah, that's, wow. that's, that's another convergence. Great score. Fred, do us a favor and tell us uh, a cut to go out on. Well, you know, we were talking about his link with Charlie Parker, he did a, a song on uh, Change of the Century, which was his second album with a great quartet, called Bird Food. And you know, Charlie Parker was known as Bird. And it starts out like, yeah, yeah, I can play Charlie Parker songs. Listen to this. And I don't know how far we'll take it out, but the listeners can go listen themselves. When he goes into a solo, he goes off into a completely different direction, but it still mm. sounds like it's in that tradition. Wonderful. Fred Kaplan, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about Ornette Coleman. Oh, pleasure. Of this tremendous legacy. And I should add that, the, that we'll uh, supply copious listening links on our show page at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. June Thomas, what do we have? Well, if you are looking for a good beach read to help you relax this summer or maybe a gripping drama to binge watch over a rainy weekend, well... Our second sponsor has the answer to that dilemma. You can just ask your friends on TasteBud and get notified as the recommendations roll in. So TasteBud, it's a new mobile app that lets you exchange recommendations on movies, music, books, TV shows, podcasts and apps and whatever else you fancy with friends and other trusted sources. And best of all, you can easily share your TasteBud posts to Twitter and Facebook and via text message. TasteBud posts are fully viewable on the web. So get TasteBud now in the App Store or go to tastebudapp.co. That's tastebudapp.co. And now back to you, Stephen. All right, moving on. Juan Felipe Herrera has just been named the United States Poet Laureate. Mr. Herrera is a poet, a professor, a recipient of some of the real biggies of the big awards from Penn and Guggenheim, the National Book Critics Award. He's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the author of 30 books. And I will quote Stephen Burt from The New York Times because uh, he is one of my favorite critics of poetry who says that... Uh, Herrera has created a new hybrid art, part oral, part written, part English, part something else, an art grounded in ethnic identity fueled by collective pride, yet irreducibly individual, too. Mr. Herrera, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really uh, looking forward to it. Describe a little bit what it is you do, because it's it has obvious antecedents in poetry, in uh, obviously Ginsburg's work in uh, Pablo Neruda and Walt Whitman, but it may strike some of our listeners as going beyond even the template that they laid down. Yeah, there's a lot of layers. You know how it is. Uh, there's a lot of layers to consciousness and to uh, how we see things and what we write and who we are. I spent a lot of time uh, w wandering around uh, California, the United States, and Mexico in the 60s and 70s, and uh, 80s and even 90s. And, of course, I, I grew up in the civil rights movement time and student movements of uh, the late 60s and uh, the musical, the music rock scene and the hootenanny folk scene. All that is, is part of what I do and where I'm coming from, where my language comes from and how I like to do things. Uh, let's see, in particular, the, uh, the Chicano movement. You know, it's uh, rallies, uh, developing Chicano studies, uh, exchanging writing experiments, trekking into Mexico, into the uh, villages, and 
hanging out with the peoples into uh, in Chiapas, for example, Veracruz, Atlantic side of Mexico, for example. So all that, you know, has been part of my uh, poetic quest in uh, coming up with terms and coming up with uh, new frames for uh, for writing and for talking about poetry. So, so you're right in a sense. You're you're aiming at something that I really haven't talked about, and it's it's the Chicano movement days and influences and partners and partnership that is still taking place. And it's um, my experiments in theater and indigenous theater and poetics and uh, and working with young peoples and what they're up to in spoken word. So, Juan Felipe, I know that, that oral poetry and improvisation is a big part of your poetic practice, and I wanted to hear you talk about that and also maybe how your early years influenced that. I know you were the, the son of migrant farm workers, so I assume that you changed schools a lot and that your early education was, there was a lot of displacement. And, uh, and I wonder how, you know, how that bilingualism and, and changing schools kind of affected the way that you think about oral poetry. Well, you know, you're, uh, you're right. I love uh, to say things um, more or less <laughs> the way we say things at home and on the street and in our community and, you know, everywhere, really. We can't really just grab what we say at home and keep it, quote-unquote, pure and bring it out on paper and then project it pure <laughs> into a pure audience. That, that just is, is impossible. But there is, a, you know, I do have a great interest in, in public uh, poetics, and also uh, definitely appreciate and uh, have loved and without my parents' stories and love for uh, performance and and sayings and riddles and storytelling and joke telling. But, you know, I, I would miss a whole. I would have missed a whole beautiful, you know, planet galaxy of speaking. So that's more like a, what I would call oral poetics that I, that I love to work with. And I think all of us are working with, you know, there's so many speech communities that we all belong to. In reading about you, I know that you are, have, a, have said a lot about wanting to kind of democratize poetry, to really involve a lot of people in poetry, to make it be something that's accessible to all, to indeed have lots of people contribute to poems. But at the same time, I'm aware that poetry is in some ways the most difficult art to access. I mean, in some ways it... It's, it's very direct, you know, nothing makes you cry as easily as a poem. And yet, sometimes you look at a poem and you just think, what? I don't know what you're talking about. It's, 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 so it's both very accessible and at the same time, you know, there's a distance between a person trying to read a poem and, and feeling kind of defeated by it often. So I just kind of wondered, like, how you deal with that. Like, what's, as somebody who's very interested in really involving people in poetry, how do you deal with the, just the kind of the difficulty of it? Well, you know, you're right. Uh, it, it is difficult, and access is, is challenging. Uh, what kind of access, access by whom, and access for whom, and access with what? You know, those are tough questions that all of us deal with uh, when we want to um, uh, democratize ourselves and the world we live in and uh, how we see the world and how it impacts uh, our lives and everyone's lives. It's It's a big question, and we all have to need to deal with that question. At least that's that's the biggest piece, perhaps, is to get the insight, to have the insight uh, where we feel helpless. We go, you know, how do I do this? I don't know how to do this. This is too big. And then once we hit that, then we can start. So there are many currents. So it's not just one voice. It's uh, many voices, and some are contradictory, and some snap, some snap at each other. Some eat the other voices up. So that's where we're at. Jurassic voices. I mean, I think the moment has arrived to get some of the contrary streams flowing. You have prepared some poems for the show, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yes, I wrote, a, uh, I wrote one poem for you uh, called uh, Give Me That Free Jazz. Uh, the, the words that, uh, the terms that you provided were very interesting terms. Uh, one of them was Jurassic, was it Jurassic Park or Jurassic World? Jurassic World. Jurassic World. And uh, the other, other term was Ornette Coleman. So I just went with it, um, especially since I only had like 15 minutes. I've been so busy. <laughs> Too busy. Give me that free jazz for Ornette Coleman. In between the cracks, baby. That's what we're playing before we go down in this post-mod five-spot cafe. There's Neo, no harmonic cafe. 
Who wants that hybrid primitivist return to original dinosauria? You want that? Ornette, hear me now? I'm calling you from the last riff inside the bop chords. I'm calling Pee Wee Clayton. I'm calling Cherry on the pocket trumpet. You see what I'm saying? I'm talking to you, Coleman. I'll play the plastic sax because it has a dry tone. You say? Give me that free jazz because I'm running in between the cracks of the new extinction. There's no, there's no saxophonic, there's no symphonic chase on the other side of the sculpted gates where the lab blazes in its luminescent electrochromosome chaser suit. Do you want the new genome return on the operation table? Mad Max Capitalisticus is getting ready for the masses. Do you want to kill anything that moves, baby? Do you want that new frontier? I want Shelly Mann on the drums. How about you? New Orleans soprano? Let it blow. Blow it on the Sphinx. Your alto sax grammar all the way from Fort Worth, Texas, back home where you started. Wait a minute. I hear Jimmy Garrison on bass. Wait a minute. The audience is waiting. The teeth, the teeth are showing. The gates are closing. It's starlight. It's neon and capitalisticus breakout from the cage. Listen to me. In this island, we still roam. We still hit the bob chords. Give me that free jazz. Give me that free jazz. That just may do it. Bravo. Not bad for 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to get on the ball. In relation to that, <laughs> that was so wonderful. So, Juan Felipe, because you say that you, you wrote that poem in 15 minutes because you're so pressed for time, that brings me to another question that I had to ask you um, when, when I was reading about you becoming the Poet Laureate of the U.S., and you've already served as the Poet Laureate of California in the past. I wanted to know how you balance this necessary solitude of being a writer and a poet. And I know you've said that you, you take walks while you write, and you, know, you do need a certain amount of, of solitude to dive into language in that way with the public duties of being a, a public poet and somebody who teaches and leads workshops and democratizes poetry, as June was saying. Is that, is that a hard thing to balance? Well, you know, the more public I get, the less time I need. That, that's just the trade-off. You know, that, that's the trade-off. You can't be, you really can't be the classical, which I've been, and I still do it, hermit, desk-centered, room-centered, poet, and then hit the streets. You can't. I mean, how are you going to do that unless you have a bri- the Golden Gate coming right in between your bedroom? <laughs> so the more public I get, and that happened with the California Poet Laureate uh, experience, is the less time I need to, uh, that I need to myself to write. I just write on trains. I write on pieces of paper. I write in the hotel on a wall where with, with those little hotel tablets you get and I scribble on them and then I go out in the elevator then I go downstairs and somewhere down the line I'll type it and then print it out somewhere or I'll read it off the laptop and uh and the, or the hotel paper tablet and I'm good I mean that's that's how it, that's how I do it now but you keep on doing what you need to do in the space that you have that's that's inspiring I have to yeah there's no way out all right. Well, Juan Felipe Herrera, thank you so much for coming on the program. This was a terrific segment. It was our privilege. Thank you. You know, you guys are amazing. I appreciate it. And slate. Viva slate. <laughs> Gracias. Viva. <laughs> Congratulations on, on the new position, on your laurel crown. <laughs> thank you, for sure. Muchas gracias. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the uh, moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor. Julia Turner is joining us from her vacation in Jurassic World where she's uh, going carefully over their spreadsheets. They had to bring in someone even colder and more corporate than uh, Her heels are even Bryce higher Howard. than Bryce Dallas Howard's. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Absentia, Julia. Take it away. Hey, so this is Julia Turner popping in from vacation to read one of this week's ads. We are sponsored this week by The Great Courses. They've been a sponsor of a couple different Slate podcasts over the years, and they finally come to you, the Slate Culture Fest listeners, because they know that most of you listening to this podcast are like me, Steve, and Dana, interested in learning for our own personal enjoyment and enrichment. And that's the motivation behind The Great Courses. The folks who put them together produce engaging video and audio lecture series taught by top professors and experts 
athletes in their fields. One of the Great Courses series is called The Fundamentals of Photography, and it's taught by National Geographic photographer Joel Sartore. So you have the opportunity through Great Courses to basically learn how to take better photographs from a National Geographic photographer through a series of super helpful and illuminating video lectures. I'm super excited about this course because as a new parent, I now take photos all the time every day. Also, as an Instagram aficionado, I take photos all the time. But I'm very much self-taught and have no idea how to take photos that look good, for example, or how to use light or how to do something more advanced than just pointing and clicking. In a way, the low barrier to entry of iPhone photos, which allow you to snap, snap, snap all the time, actually make it harder to find a pathway towards achieving real mastery. The Great Courses offers pathways of that sort. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary this year, and they offer over 500 courses, including history, literature, psychology, better living, and of course, the fundamentals of photography. The great courses have a special limited time offer for Culture GabFest listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the fundamentals of photography, at up to 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash culture. Again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash culture. All right, I'm beaming out. Back to the show. All right. Well, moving on now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Dana, what do you got? Okay. So this week I am going to endorse uh, one of my favorite film critics who was actually my predecessor at Slate. David Edelstein now writes for New York Magazine, and he really is one of the best writers on film out there. I'm endorsing in particular this week his obituary of Sir Christopher Lee, the great British Mm -hmm. actor who died last week, I believe, or the week before, um, who first made his name playing Dracula in these British horror films from from Hammer Studios and I guess, the early 60s, June? Is that when those movies are from? Something like that. Yeah. Late 50s, early 60s. He kind of reinvented Dracula, essentially, after Bela Lugosi had made the role his own back in the 30s. Um, then later in life, he became known for The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and singing heavy metal music, and he was just everywhere. There was no kind of area of popular culture that didn't occasionally have the wonderful voice and face of Chris. Christopher Lee popping up. And uh, and Edelstein has interviewed him in the past, has followed his career, his whole life, and just loves Christopher Lee and writes this beautiful, beautiful obituary for him in, in New York Magazine. So we'll link to that on our show page. I think my favorite detail that he gives in this obituary is that um, Christopher Lee used to like to cut out a lot of his dialogue as Dracula in these Hammer films because, according to him, silence was more effective than the terrible dialogue he was wow. being given and that he wanted to get across what he called the loneliness of evil, which is just oh. such a beautiful phrase. And that is exactly what his Dracula, which is this very gothic, brooding, handsome Dracula, gets across, is the loneliness of being an eternal vampire. Wow. Amazing. Oh, wonderful. Agreed. David Alstein is a freaking gem. Um, All right, June, what do you have? So I am going to lower the tone slightly by recommending a wonderful new TV comedy. It's on Bravo, but it's a scripted show, and it's called Odd Mom Out. So this woman, Jill Kargman, who has written books about her fish-out-of-water existence in the Upper East Side. It's very similar to the Primates of Park Avenue that has been in the news of late and which was discussed uh, on the Double X Gabfest a couple of weeks ago. But to me, it's much funnier. It's much more real. It's really bawdy and, and sort of shocking and wonderful. And she um, writes the series and also is the star of the show. And I think she's very funny and very likable. And I just think that the show has not really gotten um, the attention it deserves. We've had, I think, three episodes so far. And it's called Odd Mom Out on Bravo. That sounds great. All right. Well, for my endorsement, um, I'm going to begin by recalling Dana back to a um, a moment in her life um, that I hope she's willing to relive uh, on a hot mic with a hot mic. But um, we we did a live show in um, in San Francisco, and then we were supposed to fly down to L.A. to do another one with a layoff of a day or two. And I took the extra day to stay in San Francisco to visit old friends. And Dana went immediately to L.A. only to discover that right next door to our hotel, the band Bell and Sebastian was playing. She scalped a ticket. Not only did she scalp a ticket and see the show, she then slept with everyone in the band. <laughs> Gay or straight? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> um, I did, I will have quite. you know, I did chat up Stuart Murdoch that night. Yes, yeah, so you went to the hotel, afterwards to the, the hotel bar, to fight off despair and insomnia. And there was uh, Stuart Murdoch, the front man and principal songwriter of Bell and Sebastian. And you and he uh, sat around and chatted, Dana, for what, like an hour or something? Or? <laughs> no, we just had a moment. I mean, as the 
party was sort of wrapping up, I just went over and said, I've loved your music for years and thank you for the show. And we had a nice little talk. And it turned out I was telling him how fantastic the choreography was in this one video that they projected behind them while they sing. And he said, I've never watched that video because I'm always standing in front of it singing. So I was the one who told him, well, look at it next time, you know, because it's, it's got great dancing in it. Okay, well, that's hilarious because I used to be obsessed with Bell and Sebastian and then kind of lost touch with them a little bit, but my wife gave me tickets to see their Radio City Music Hall show uh, five or six nights ago, whenever it was, and um, they were fantastic. I hadn't seen them since, uh, probably hadn't seen them in about 12, 13 years. Aren't they he so great on, on stage? He's born to perform on stage. Incredible show. He is such a ham. I mean, you listen to the music and you think... You know, it's a hothouse flower and you think of Vespas and, you know, students with their copy of Being and Nothingness, you know, driving over rain-swept cobblestone streets. And, and in fact, he's just, he's like almost like Springsteen in his desire to kind of wag his tail and pre- please an audience. And bring people up on stage like Springsteen used to do. Yeah, bring people up on stage. He got he got up during our show on, on the keyboard the <laughs> way Springsteen used to. I mean, just the whole thing was wonderful and you know just a great celebration but anyway i was thinking later i'm supposed to write something about bell and sebastian and uh was pondering their musical antecedents as a way of trying to just frame their describe their sound and put it in some kind of context and i couldn't think of much of anything when i came across something written by one of the original band members describing the influence of momus the musician momus on bell and sebastian so i started listening to momus it turns out momus is the um nom de chanson of a guy named nicholas curry and he's been making music for about 30 years it was you can hear immediately the influence it had on bell and sebastian on his wiki page it says momus is fascinated by identity japan rome the avant-garde time travel and sex <laughs> which is to say like like all of us yeah. right <laughs> i like that sex is Ditto. last on the list when all that other stuff is done <laughs> Sex. <laughs> a little leftover for the yeah panky panky but um i uh i love this music it's as if you took bell and sebastian and handed it to juan felipe herrera and had him you know kind of scrabble it and then he handed it off to ornette coleman and he stripped it of its last vestige of of songcraft architecture and then handed it back to you and it's still delicious but way weirder and i love it and what i'm really curious to know is do people out there in our audience listen to momus and if you do what do you think of it and what should i listen to next i was listening to some collection they just happen to have on spotify that i loved but um anyway come tell us facebook.com slash culture fest momus what is what does he mean to you all right that's a wrap dana thank you so much thank you Stephen. june thank you so much for subbing in that was wonderful thank you always a pleasure You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply our twitter feed is at slate cult fest for june thomas and dana stevens i'm stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us we'll see you soon